All right, if you got your Bibles, you ready? Open to 2 Samuel chapter 15, 2 Samuel 15, and we're going to start in verse 27, all right? Uh, this is a great lesson to take notes on, okay? I want to highly encourage you, go back. If you're not caught up and up to date via podcast, go back through. There was a link in the email this week uh, where you can go back and, uh, and sign up to get to, uh, to get to see that. But the last week's message, really, really special. And this one, man, I'm telling you, if you are the type of person who is living life open-handed, and you sit there and go, all right, Lord, now what? Okay, we talked about last week, living life with open hands. We are managers of God's blessing and not owners. What are we supposed to do now? Well, this is the answer to that question. Uh, what David does after he releases the palace, after he releases the kingship, after he releases the situation with, Am, uh, with, uh, with Absalom to God, all of a sudden we have David just uh, blazing a trail for us and showing us what we do while we are specifically waiting for God to intervene. And that's the, uh, that's the title of the message today. Uh, it starts with this question. Have you ever needed someone to intervene before? All right. You ever needed someone to intervene before? Maybe it was like you got into a fight and you were like, hold me back. Right. You know what I mean? You ever had somebody like in between, in between, get in between, you know, hold you back. Uh, sometimes it's intervening at work. Sometimes it's intervening at home. Uh, sometimes it's just intervening in the community. Um, I got an example of this. Uh, so um, I, I make my drive in and I cross the Woodrow Wilson Bridge. And then when I come around to, uh, to I-295, I-295 is kind of a fun little spot because uh, as you're coming in on 295, you've got DC water and Bowling Air Force Base on one side. And then on the other side, you've got National Harbor. And then there's like this random marsh just south of Anacostia, this random marsh that's over there on the side. And you can still get like Discovery Channel moments over there by that marsh because there's enough wildlife that lives over there. One in particular, some of you who drive 295 have noticed this uh, uh, it's not there anymore, but there was a stretch of about three weeks where there was a hawk's nest on one of the overpass, uh, one of the overpasses with signs uh, when you come on to 295. Just right there on the corner, there's just this, again, it was this beautiful merging together of society and nature, you know, just right there together. Well, anyway, um, this hawk lives up there. My family's been watching this hawk through this time. And uh, one day I got to see Living Discovery Channel right in front of me. I'm driving in. I'm looking up to see if the hawk is there, and I see the hawk, except this time the hawk is flying to go land on the little sign, but in its talons are a huge fish, all right? There's this huge fish, and you can see that uh, the hawk has just plucked it from the water because the fish's mouth is still moving just like this as it carries the fish in its talon to the nest where, I mean, it's probably going to eat it, right? So I'm telling you, I'm watching this happen, and I, this is so weird, but I like put myself in place of the fish. You ever done that before? Like you see something happen in nature and I'm like, that fish has probably never been more than a foot out of the water. You know, when it like flips out of the water, it's probably been never more than a foot out of the water before. And now all of a sudden here it is like 60 feet in the air flying overhead going, what is going on? Right. Can I tell you what that fish needs? Someone to intervene. All right. That fish cannot do anything on its own. That fish is in trouble. In fact, if you process it, about all that fish can do is try to wiggle itself loose. But even then, if it falls down, it's going to land in the middle of the street and get cooked on 295. I mean, it's just the way it goes, right? It's hot outside, except for today. It's usually hot outside. Now, listen, there are some of you, that is how you feel right now. You're going through life or how you felt in the past, where you sit there and you go, Lord, I am so out of my element. 
I don't know what's going to happen. I know that I'm going to end up in real trouble unless you intervene. And you can feel so deeply helpless. Can I tell you what I would do if I was that fish? I would start wiggling as hard as I could like my life depended on it. Do you know why? Because that's about all that that fish can do at that point. There's an old saying that the old timers used to say, and it's one of the five things that if you're around waterfront long enough, you'll start to hear this over and over. One of the terms that the old timers used to say was give it to God, okay? What does give it to God mean? If you want to write this down, you can. In fact, I've got it written in the flap of my Bible. Give it to God means do the very best you can and then trust God to do the rest. Give it to God means do the very best you can and trust God to do the rest. Sometimes when we hear or say, give it to God, the image we have in our mind is like, all right, Lord, I'm plopping down right here. And when you're ready to move me, you'll move me. And it sounds like that's a very, very faith-filled thing. But sometimes faith is not just saying, well, Lord, I hate my position in life. I hate the way things are going. It can't continue this way any longer. You've cast vision for my life. And when you're ready, you'll pick me up and move me. Sometimes the most faith-filled thing that you can do is say, God, I know that my effort only gets me to the edge of the carpet, but you've called me to go to the end of the stage. I don't know how I'm going to get there, but I have the faith to start moving in the right direction so that you can carry me to the end of the, of the vision. Now, the picture there again, give it to God. Do the very best you can and then trust God to do the rest. Moody Bible writes this on the subject. I thought this was beautiful. You ready? A little quote here. We must understand the balance between God's sovereignty and our responsibility. We must understand the balance between God's sovereignty and our responsibility. There is nothing that the fish can do in the hawk's talons to assure its way out of its grasp. But the fish, if it has the ability to wiggle at this point, needs to do everything it can to wiggle and then trust that something good is going to happen on the other side. Trust that the Lord, in his timing, will intervene. So the way this ties into our story of David. Last week, we talked about managers, not owners, and living life with open hands. In 2 Samuel chapter 15, this is so interesting. David starts by saying, I don't want people to get hurt. And instead of negotiating, renegotiating my position or standing and fighting against my son Absalom, instead, David looks and says, I release it and I'll go back on the run with my family. All these other people begin to come with David in that moment as the Lord is leading him in that direction. But here's what's so interesting. Right after verse 26 of 2 Samuel 15, it says, verse 26, but if he says, if the Lord says, I'm not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. David says, I release the kingship. I release the palace. I release all those things that I held on to, all those blessings that I held on to. The Lord gave them, and now he has taken them away. But watch verse 27. Here's the turn. We give it to God. It says here, but the king also said to Zadok. Underline the king also said to Zadok. The first part of this passage is he says, I don't need the Ark of the Covenant. The Lord is going to take care of us. I don't have to have that. The, the Ark, remember, was symbolic of a military weapon and also this device of public prayer, this, uh, this, uh, this place that the, they could, this thing that they could use to call out to Almighty God in a public setting. David says, take the Ark back to Jerusalem. But the king also said to Zadok the priest, aren't you a seer? Underline, aren't you a seer? That's basically, aren't you a priest? Aren't you apolitical here? He says, go back to the city in peace with your son, Ahimaaz, and Jonathan, son of Abathar. 
You and Abathar, take your two sons with you. Now stop right there for just a minute. After David saying, I live with open hands before you. After him saying, Lord, I'm waiting for you to intervene. David then does something very interesting. He looks at Zadok and Abathar, who have shown that they are loyal to him as the country is split. And he goes, I need you to go back to the palace. You're loyal to me, and so it would seem that you would want to march with me. He said, but instead, I want you to go and be my reliable eyes and ears on this circumstance so that if Absalom's heart changes, so that if there's an opportunity for the country to be mended, so that if there's anything good that can come from this awful situation, I will trust you and I will trust your report. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Because sometimes... When we're waiting for God to intervene, the temptation can be, again, to live like an ostrich with our head in the sand. But David very wisely here leaves the line of communication open, and he does it specifically with someone who is honest, reliable, and godly. If you're taking notes, write that down. What can we do while we're waiting for God to intervene? Number one is identify honest, reliable, godly insiders. Write that down. Identify reasonable, honest, godly insiders. When we are waiting for the Lord to take care of us in a work situation, family situation, whatever it is that you're praying through, whatever it is that you're navigating, there are two types of people that you can go to. Those that stir you up unnecessarily and those that provide you with good, with good uh, godly information, reasonable information. Take a note, you can write this down. Trusting in God's sovereignty does not mean embracing ignorance. Trusting in God's sovereignty does not mean embracing ignorance. David wants to know what's going on, and that is not a faithless move. He keeps the lines of communication open. There was a movie that came out back in the day called The Incredibles. You remember The Incredibles? Great little movie. Mr. Incredible is kind of the main character in the story. Uh, big and strong, and uh, he ends up losing his job, his position as a superhero, uh, because he saves someone that doesn't want to be saved. Do you remember that? And they sue him. And so uh, because of that, he has to go and become an insurance agent, which is so sad that that's the punishment. For those of you who work in insurance, it's not a punishment, all right? Anyway, so he goes, he's working insurance, and do you remember? Here he is, and he is the honest, reliable, godly insider, He's one who has a history of justice, right? Uh, He's uh, taking care of people that he didn't even know. But there he is working at that insurance agency. Uh, And uh, you remember the old woman comes in and she tries to file a claim. I love that scene. And he looks at her, but he's been told by this particular company, not all insurance companies are this way, but this particular one, Mr. Incredible Works for fictionally is this way. He goes in and you remember the old woman comes in and she goes, I have this claim. I need money. I need some help through this point. And you remember what he says? He looks and he's the unreliable godly insider and he goes ma'am and he peeks out the door looks back and he goes I wish I could tell you to go see our legal analyst Mrs. Wilcox on the second floor and then he looks at her and goes please write this down and she goes and he goes I wish I could tell you to go visit Miss Wilcox on the second floor our legal analyst and then I wish I could tell you that you have to go then and fill out form 103-6b and turn it in on the fourth floor I wish I could tell you that then we would get back to you in four to ten business days uh, with an answer to your claim and then remember he looks at her and goes please start crying as you walk out and she goes oh and she cries and she goes on the outside now remember that old scene he's the honest reliable godly insider i love it because then who comes in but the little weasley boss right 
It's the Weasley boss. It's the same guy that does the voice of Rex on Toy Story and famously is the Weasley guy on Princess Bride, right? I can't remember what, what is his name? Anybody know his name? I tell you, we all know his voice, don't we, right? It's like the ultimate Weasley voice, right? And so anyway, do you remember he comes in and he goes, Bob, which is what Mr. Incredible's calling himself, Bob, he goes, come to my office right now. And do you remember the scene? He goes, I don't understand it. They're navigating the bureaucracy. And remember, he's just so frustrated, so angry. Well, listen, I don't care where you work. I don't care who you work for. I don't care if it's government, I don't care if it's private sector, or if it's a church for crying out loud. Listen, there are reasonable people, and there are Weasley people. In every profession, in every office, in every living situation, there are godly people, there are reasonable people, reasonable people, and there are Weasley people. The Weasley people stir you up unnecessarily. What David does here is David goes, there are going to be a lot of rumors that make their way to me. He said, I want you to go. And he said, I want you to be my eyes and ears. He goes, you're the godly ones. You're the priests. And he says, aren't you a seer? Aren't you apolitical in nature? He said, go and be my eyes and ears and inform me on how to best navigate this situation. If you're taking notes, it begs the question. On topics that strike a nerve, are you getting your info from reliable, reasonable sources or instigators with an agenda. On topics that strike a nerve, are you getting your info from reliable, reasonable sources or instigators with an agenda? For some of you who are having problems at work, really analyze who you're having lunch with through this time. Are you having lunch with people who have your best interest in mind, who offer reasonable, godly solutions? Or let's just be honest, are you meeting with people who you can spew information to, and then if they have an agenda, they can keep you right where they want you, as far away from that job as possible so they get the promotion and not you? I want to encourage you. Really analyze that. David here, David says, it's very important to me. He says, I need to know if I have an opportunity to come back and to be with my son again. I want to know if the country can be united. I still desire to be the king. I'm the manager of that gift and not the owner. Lord, I trust you. But Lord, I, but at the same time, David has set himself up. He has given it to God. But the work that he is doing is providing an outlet so he can get good information. Now look at what happens next in 2 Samuel 15, verses 28 and 29. What he does here is also interesting. It says, verse 28. He tells them, you go back to the palace. Be my eyes and ears. Verse 28, I will wait at the fords in the desert. Underline the fords in the desert. Because the ford, having to do with the river specifically, and desert are such opposite words here. He's painting a really cool picture. I will wait at the fords in the desert until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abathar took the ark of God back to Jerusalem and stayed there. Now stop right there for just a minute. What David does now, is David looks at Zadok and he looks at Abathar and says, while you're there providing me with reasonable, honest intel, he said, I'm going to take us and put us at a very strategic military spot. You know what the ford was? The ford was the part of the river where the river was low enough that people could just walk through it. That meant that you didn't have to swim, didn't mean that it was a difficult place. But catch this. David says, I'm not just going anywhere. I'm going to the ford, the low spot in the river that also backs up to the desert. 
The idea is nothing can sneak up on them and hit them from behind. They can stay focused on what's in front of them. It's a place that provides good water uh, for his troops, provides good water for his family. And if for some reason they do decide to attack, the fords are so low, you can't sail in with the Navy and take them down. He's just given himself incredible military position. In fact, if they come at him, they've got to trudge through the mud. And David and his men can shoot him with arrows, hit him with spears before they ever get out of the mud to attack him. Now listen to this. What David has done while we're waiting for God to intervene, number two, be mindful of where you have positioned yourself. Be mindful of where you have positioned yourself. For some of you, waiting for God to show up on your behalf. You think the godly thing is to plop down like a boulder and do nothing. It is not ungodly or even unwise to say, Lord, if I have to wait, I'm going to position myself at a place where your blessing can fall easily. That is not ungodly or faithless to think through your position. If you just plop down and go, well, if God really is sovereign, then he will airlift me out of here. God can do that. But a lot of times our effort... Our effort is a sacrifice of faith in the midst of that moment. If you're taking notes, a little quote here for you. Trusting God's sovereignty doesn't mean leaving important aspects of our lives exposed, unnecessarily exposed. Trusting God's sovereignty doesn't mean leaving important aspects of our lives unnecessarily exposed. Be mindful of where you positioned yourself. I've given you so many Red Lobster examples recently, but I'm going to give you another one, all right? I loved working at Red Lobster, four and a half years. And really, I loved working there four years. Half a year, I didn't love it so much. Do you know why? Because that half a year, I waited tables with a degree, all right? Now, here's the thing. It was a great job. It was not beneath me. But the moment I got that little sheet of paper that was in an area in a field of study that did not have to do with waiting tables... All of a sudden, I felt like that job was something that I didn't want to do anymore. And I'll remember, I wanted to do ministry, what I'm doing here before you today. But the problem with ministry is I still need to go to seminary, and I didn't have any experience, which are the two things that are required anytime you interview for a ministry job. And so your first ministry job that you get is an absolute miracle. Okay, some of you understand that because it's the same way in politics for you work in politics. How are you supposed to get experience, right, if you just got out of school? And so here I am, and I remember it was John Strapazon who I was talking to, and I asked Strap, I said, what do I need to do? Have you got a job you can offer me? And he goes, I don't have a job for you, man. He said, I'd love to disciple you. I'd love to teach you. I'd love to plug you into the ministry we're doing here. And then he goes, hadn't you waited tables at Red Lobster for four years? And this job that I loved so much, all of a sudden I was like, yeah, but... God will provide for me, right? We can sit in that moment and be like, if God doesn't provide something that fulfills my needs, something that pays enough money, something that's in the field of study that I've been working towards, if he doesn't provide in that way, then I ain't doing nothing. That wasn't a faith-filled belief in God's sovereignty. That was a demand I was making, and I withheld my faith. Sometimes the godliest thing you can do is give it to God, like we talked about, Lord, in my effort, I can only get to the edge of the carpet, but you called me to go off the edge of the stage. Why do I even try? Because sometimes when we're going, the Lord picks us up and soars. In that act of faith, the Lord then fills in the gap and does the rest. So I did the unthinkable. I waited tables with a degree for six months. I'll never forget the way that the Lord spoke. It was so powerful. 
I'm waiting tables, and it was so hard to get out of bed some of those days. Not only was I waiting tables, but kids, I was waiting tables in my hometown. You're talking about girls I used to date coming in with their family and going, shouldn't you be out of college by now? Shouldn't you be doing something real with your life at this point? And I'd just be sitting there going, hey, it's great to see you. How you been? Would you like mozzarella sticks? You know what I mean? I mean, I'm telling you, there's just a big dose of humility. But I made the decision that I was going to be where my feet were. And that if this is what the Lord had called me to do, maybe there was something else he could do. I could get out of bed. I could go to work. I could serve with a smile on my face. And you know what's nuts? I could wait tables in my sleep. I've done it for four years. I still to this day wait tables in my sleep. Any of you who've ever had those, like my nightmares are still waiter and wait, or, or waiting table nightmares that I have even as a 40-year-old man to this day. I still wait tables in my sleep. So one day, I made the decision that I was going to start witnessing to the tables that I waited on. Not in a pushy way, but if people asked me what I was doing with my life, why I was still waiting tables, even as old as I was, then I would share with them specifically um, that I was doing it while waiting for the Lord to provide a job for me and then share my faith with them. So one particular day, I've been doing this for some time, and one particular day, a little couple comes in from Post, Texas, named Mickey and Shirley McMeans. Mickey and Shirley, older couple, sit down. He had been the superintendent of schools in that area. Mickey and Shirley sit down. They ask me what I'm doing. I tell them I'm waiting for a ministry job, uh, but for now I'm waiting tables. I share my faith with them. And I'll never forget, after it was done, Mickey looked at me and he goes, son, I appreciate what you said, but we're already saved. Thank you. And I said, okay, that's good. <laughs> he goes, you're looking for a ministry job? I said, yeah. Mickey goes, um, well, our youth minister just quit. He said, uh, maybe you could interview for the position. He goes, he quit in kind of dramatic fashion. He said, uh, we need to do an interim. He said, maybe we could, maybe we could use you for the interim job. I said, that'd be great. And he goes, what's your last name? And I said, Randall's. And he goes, oh, man. He said, your family knows our son very well. This is crazy. My dad only pastored three churches. Of the three churches, Steve McMeans, Mickey's son, had followed my dad at two of the three churches as pastor. In fact, he's still at Indiana Avenue Baptist Church, the church that my dad pastored in Lubbock uh, in the 80s and 90s to this day. He looks over and goes, maybe the Lord's in this. I said, who's the pastor of the church? He said, a guy named Jim Hancock is our intentional interim pastor. I call my dad with this story. I go, you're not going to believe this. I was waiting tables today. And I said, Mickey McMeans came in. He goes, Mickey? He goes, Steve's dad? I said, yeah, he's at First Baptist Post, Texas. He goes, that's Jim Hancock's church. I go, yeah, that's the name of the interim pastor. He goes, son, you don't understand. He said, Jim is the DOM for the whole area. He said, Post blew up in kind of dramatic fashion. As far as the church coming, just falling apart. Lots of infighting. He said, he's the head. He goes, all the jobs, all the full-time jobs in the entire region. He said, Jim knows who they are. And a lot of those churches have asked him for recommendations on who can come in and serve. And I go, are you serious? Dad goes, the Lord just put your career on a silver platter in front of you. He goes, while you were asking them if they want mozzarella sticks at Red Lobster. Now listen to me. Do the very best you can, and then you trust God to do the rest. It is a faithless act to say, if God really is sovereign, do you hear that? It's not belief in God's sovereignty. It's a test of his sovereignty. When you refuse to do anything and you just plop down and go, airlift me out of here if you really are God. The Lord looks at you and goes, man, you got a whole lot of humility you need to learn. 
And a lot of times we sit idle and we miss out on great blessing because we've positioned ourselves poorly. It begs the question, should you fortify your position while you wait for new marching orders? Let me ask that again. Should you fortify your position while you wait for new marching orders? There are some of you that would say, I can't do it all. But there is something you can do during this process that will be a sacrifice of faith so that you are showing God, Lord, I trust you. I'm doing what I can, and I'm believing that you're going to carry me the rest of the way. Now look at the next part of the story. Look at 2 Samuel 15, and let's read verses 30 and 31. Here's what it says next. It says, but David continued up the Mount of Olives. Underline the Mount of Olives. This is the same Mount of Olives where Jesus goes the night before he's crucified, where he's arrested. This is that same Mount of Olives, hundreds of years before, where David is continuing up. And you've got to picture this. The Mount of Olives overlooks the city of Jerusalem. You want to talk about a moment of David realizing what he has released to God by releasing the kingdom, by releasing this city that the Lord has used him to build and fortify? All of a sudden, here's David on that same Mount of Olives looking out and going, man, I can't believe we're letting go of this. I keep, Lord, I'm trusting this back to you. Look at what it says. He continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, his head covered, and he was barefoot. This idea of head covered and barefoot specifically is grief and pain. He's trying to show visibly that he's in grief and he's in pain emotionally and physically because of what's taking place here. All the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went. Now, David had been told, Ahithropel is among the conspirators with Absalom. Remember, Ahithropel is Bathsheba's grandfather, and he's basically the president chief of staff. He's the one who has all the political insight to try to rip David apart. Truly, he's the one. If he gives good insight, then the country will be split forever. It says, so David prayed, O Lord, turn Ahithropel's counsel into foolishness. Now stop right there for just a minute. This is a really powerful thing for us to get to see. David is in his right mind. He's in his right spirit. He's in his right moment here. He's in his right element to where he can truly go through an emotional struggle, but still have his mind on the things of the Lord. He's in a good spot, emotionally, spiritually at this point. And so David, as he's weeping, as he's really processing what he's losing at this point, what the Lord is taking back under his control, David then stops and is brought to a very specific prayer. Lord, thwart the political plans of the chief of staff. He's the one who is still so angry and embarrassed from what happened with Bathsheba. He prays specifically, Lord, there's a lot of stuff out of my control, but Ahithropel, Ahithropel is something very specific I need to ask your help with. If you're taking notes, write this down. This is very simple, okay? What can we do while we're waiting for God to intervene? Number one is identify reasonable, honest, godly insiders. Number two, be mindful of where you positioned yourself. And number three, pray for help in specific areas that bother you. Pray for help in specific areas that bother you. Of all the things that come to mind for David as he's praying on the Mount of Olives, Olives weeping with his head covered and barefoot, he prays specifically, Lord, Ahithropel has come to mind. Someone who's angry, who hates me so deeply and viciously that they would love to see the nation split forever just because of their personal hatred for me. He goes, take his counsel and turn it into foolishness. A little side note, I didn't preach this in the earlier service. This is just for you guys, so somebody needed to hear this. There have been times when someone has persecuted me, and my prayer 
has wickedly been. God bless those who bless me and curse those who curse me. Now that sounds like a very biblical prayer, but look at my eyes. I'm teaching you power if you're listening. To pray a curse on someone is never godly. Do you hear me? To pray a curse on someone is never godly. Ahithropel has the power to split David's family and to split the country that they love so much. But listen, David has the presence of mind and the power of the Spirit to pray, God, thwart his plans. It's a huge difference in praying that God would not bless the plans of the wicked or he would thwart the plans of the wicked and for God to curse those who curse you, all right? Do you see the difference between those two? It's a very small difference, but a very, very powerful difference. For some of you, you got people that are persecuting you. Pray that God would thwart their plans. Pray that God would bring them to a point of repentance. That's what he desires. Not that they would get their comeuppance, not that they would receive their curse, but to pray specifically that God would thwart the plan. Pray for help in specific areas that bother you. If you're taking notes, write this down. You ready? Acknowledging our specific shortcomings before God prepare our mind, prepares our mind to receive God's answer. Acknowledging our specific shortcomings before God prepares our mind to receive God's answer. Sometimes I'll be praying and I'll ask God for help broadly, but it's when I pray specifically that I get real insight into what's actually going on in my heart. You ever had this happen before? I'll start praying, it'll be a big, broad, macro prayer, and then all of a sudden, I'll pray something that's a bit more micro. And have you ever done this before? I'll pray it, and I'm like, well, that was a terrible thing to pray. You ever had that happen before? You really get into the nuts and bolts of the things that are bothering you, and you sit there and you go, well, that was a terrible thing to pray. Or you hear it and you go, you know what? I don't need to pray a curse on that person. I need to pray that God would thwart the plans. That simple ideology, that simple little change changes everything in the moment. I'll tell you one of the big things that we've prayed for over the years, me being a father. Our son Jack struggled making friends early on. He navigates autism. And in the earliest of days, um, Jack, uh, Jack is one of those who, um, if it happens one way, he wants it to happen that way over and over and over again, exactly the same way. And so it caused him some trouble in the beginning, especially having us, with us having four total kiddos. I mean, nothing is the same. I mean, it just everything is always changing. Everything's always shifting around. And so it caused him some great uh, heartache and trouble in the beginning. And it made it to where it was very difficult for him to make friends. Um, at the end of the service, I always tell you that the altar is open and I'll be down there myself. So many of the days, I beg God for things that are going on with my kids. And I just come over here and I kneel. And so there were so many times when we met in the space across the street where I would just kneel at the altar and I would pray, God, send my son a best friend. In fact, the prayer was, at the time Jack was about five, and we prayed, Lord, if he could just have one best friend, you know, just over his whole lifetime. I mean, the prayer would get, Lord, please just send him a friend. And we begged God that God would send him a friend. And then God sent Dutch Duncan. Denver's son, Dutch, has just been the absolute greatest gift from God to our family. Their whole family is amazing, and he's a gift from God to our church. But Dutch, Dutch was one of the ones that taught my son how to be a friend. And now, Jack is everybody's best friend. You know why? Because if you succeed, just the way that he is, the way that God made him, he will celebrate your victory more for you than he ever would for himself if he was going through the same thing. It's just this gift that God's given him. And the Lord gave Dutch Duncan to help unlock it. Every time I see Dutch, 
I can remember the days praying at the altar, begging God for that request. It's a very specific thing. Some of you parents in this room know what I'm talking about. You can control a whole lot of things. I can put my kids in plenty of position to be successful. But as far as the end of the stage goes, I can't make someone be their friend. I can't make someone godly be in their life in a voice of reason. I can't make them make good decisions. I couldn't make my son get off those loops that he would get stuck on from time to time. And yet, what do we do? We do the very best we can. And then we trust that God is going to carry through and do the rest. We trust that at the end of the day, he is going to take care of the rest. It begs the question, have you told God specifically what's worrying you? Have you told God specifically what's worrying you? It shapes the way that we watch for God's blessing in front of us. Find a way to put it to words. And for some of you, in the echo chamber of your brain, there are prayer requests that are bouncing around that once they make their way out so that you can actually hear it with your own ears, you sit there and go, oh my gosh, why am I praying for that? Why am I concerned with that? It wasn't actually something that ever needed to be said. Let's look at our last verses and we'll call it a day today. Verse 32 so after this, David prays, O Lord, turn all Athropos' counsel into foolishness. Right after that, it says, When he arrived at the summit where the people used to worship God, Hushai the Archite was there to meet him. Underline Hushai the Archite. His robe torn and dust on his head. Stop right there for just a minute. As they're walking away, Hushai has got basically across his forehead and through the torn robe, he is visually showing when it's not popular to do so that he is on team David and not on team Absalom. When David sees this, David realizes this isn't something false. He's not an operative. At this point, he truly is a friend to him. And David then remembers, I just prayed about Ahithropel, and I see this man who is here who has a connection with him. Look at what happens. It says in the next part, verse 33, David said to him, if you go with me, you'll be a burden to me. You're not part of our family in this. I need you to stay. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king. I was your father's servant in the past, but now I will be your servant, then you can help me, look at this, by frustrating Ahithropel's advice. Won't the priests, Zadok and Abathar, be there with you? Tell them anything you hear in the king's palace. Their two sons, Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, and Jonathan, son of Abathar, are there with them. Send them to me with anything you hear. So David's friend Hushai arrived at Jerusalem as Absalom was entering the city. Stop right there for just a minute. David's at the Mount of Olives. He's asking God for help. And then watch this. By the time he gets to the summit, just brief moments afterwards, David is already expecting for God to answer his prayer. That's another powerful thing that we can do when we've given it to God. When you ask God for help, when you identify something specific that's needed, then we keep our head on a swivel watching for God to provide in an instant, providing very quickly for us. If you're taking notes, write this down. Identify, or, uh, what can we do while we're waiting for God to intervene? Number four, keep your eyes open for answers to those prayers. Keep your eyes open for answers to those prayers. A little quote here for you. An audible voice declaring God's involvement is rare. Most often, his provision is revealed to us as we seek him daily. Let me say that one more time. An audible voice declaring God's involvement is rare. Most often, his provision is revealed to us as we seek him daily. Part of the problem with bolder theology, when you sit there and go, if God really is sovereign, then he can do it, and I'm just going to wait here. Part of that problem is we live with our feet planted and our eyes shut. 
And the truth is, very rarely does God booming say, make sure you tell Hushai to go to the palace and he will be the one to thwart Ahithropel. I have spoken, I am the Lord, right? It doesn't happen that way. It does happen, but it doesn't happen that way often. Listen to me. David, David is living his life with expectancy. The Lord is going to answer his prayer. It's a sacrifice of faith. Do you truly believe he's going to take care of it? Or is it truly just a test of God's sovereignty in your head? Isn't that interesting? There's a huge difference. It seems like the same. One seems like it's more spiritual than the other. It seems like it's more spiritual to wait on God's sovereignty. But for you, it's become a test of whether or not he's actually sovereign. Faith? Faith is sitting there going, Lord, you called me to the end of the stage. You've called me to go further than I can go on my own. I trust you, and you know what? I'm watching for opportunities. I'm watching for bridges. I'm watching for hawks that will carry me to where it is that I need to be. It begs the question, have you taken the time to connect the dots? Have you taken the time to connect the dots? One final story, and we'll call it a day. One of my dearest, closest friends had gone through a time where he was wandering from the Lord. And I prayed for him and prayed for him and prayed for him very specifically that the Lord would open a door for him to come back. We'd had so many conversations. And then one day something came up. We were going to get to ride in a car together for two and a half hours. And I'm telling you, there was this feeling within me of, I need to do something. I can't make him get saved. Or in this case, I can't make him come back to God. I can't make him start making good decisions. I can't make him deal with some of the issues in his past that are hanging over his head. I can't make him do those things. And I'm telling telling the Lord, Lord, what do you want me to do? And we had just had a moment where we had had a concert at our church. And uh, this was back in the day. I've never been cool with music. All right. I'm just not, I'm not cool. Never been cool. But this particular time, there was an up-and-coming Christian rapper, all right, named Lecrae, all right? A guy named Lecrae, great rapper. And uh, back in the day, we had had a student event. Um, just This was right before his career really took off, and we had had him come in. Um, it, was, it was so early, just again, for any of you who know Christian rap scene stuff, um, at the same deal, we had paid for Lecrae to come in, but a guy named Tadashi came and a guy named Trip Lee. All three came for the same little nothing concert that we had at the church. And so I finally had all this like hip music. It was the first time in my entire life had all this hip music. And so again, we're going through this deal, I have this moment in the car, and I'm sitting there praying, Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? I I just remember saying to the Lord, if I try to share my faith with him, he's just going to push it back the way that he has a thousand times before. We'd done Fellowship of Christian Athletes together. We'd done youth group together. There was plenty of a faith foundation there. And I'm just like, Lord, what is it that you want me to do? And I felt the Spirit say, share your faith again. And it's like, but I've done that. It didn't carry far enough. It didn't do enough. But I felt so deeply that that's what I was supposed to do. Had two and a half hours in the car. And I remember we sit down right at the beginning of the drive. And I pop in that CD from Lecrae. You get a chance to listen. There's a song. It's one of the first songs he ever wrote. It's called Take Me As I Am. It's his testimony. And in the song, and by the way, I do realize I'm a middle-aged man quoting you Christian rap lyrics. All right? But I'm going to say it to you anyway. He starts off, and it's his testimony. Every now and again, any artist across the board... There's a song that you hear that truly does, it's like a heartfelt yearning. In this particular song, there's a heartfelt yearning where you can tell he's really writing about himself. The song starts out, 546 in the morning, tossing and turning, chest burning, sermons in my head keep reoccurring. And he just goes through and talks about how he's waiting 
because throughout the, throughout the, the course of it, he can feel the weight of the sin he's committed, but at the same time, he also has this past seeds that have been planted where he's had people he's run across that have shared the gospel with him. And it finally erupts into the chorus where he says, would you take, it's just a yearning. And he says, would you take me as I am? I know the way of heaven is wrong, but I can't change on my own, trying to make it alone. How could you love me with my life so ugly? And you came down and died for me. And I'm listening to that song. And I look over and like buckets, tears are just falling from my friend's eyes. Like buckets. We prayed for years for him to come back to the Lord. Just buckets. I'm praying through the whole song at that point. And he just cries and cries. And it wasn't like a heave. It was just a silent cry with the buckets coming down. And I remember when it was over, I looked over and I said, you okay? And his exact words, he goes, that touched me. He goes, that touched me. And then we had two hours and 15 more minutes of drive. My friend now is a youth minister, just got promoted to associate pastor. And this is pretty cool. We played fullback and linebacker together. He was a groomsman of my wedding. And this is pretty cool. This year, my friend who's also a father, um, it was always our dream to get to spend one of our major holidays together. He, his wife, and son are coming up for Christmas, and we're going to get to spend Christmas together here in D.C. this year. I think back to that moment in the car. It was a turning point, a promise of faith and blessing that the Lord had stirred in our hearts almost literally 10 years before that moment ever happened. Head on a swivel. When you ask God for help, it's your new act of faith to look around and go, all right, God, where is it? Where's the blessing? Where's the answer to that prayer? I've brought it before you. I've refined it in my heart and mind, and I'm watching for you to provide. However it is you choose to provide, I'm ready to connect the dots and move forward. Are you waiting for God to intervene today? He will. We just have to wait for him and do the work where we can. Amen? Let's bow our heads for prayer.